0: And we will read two passages. In the first place, we're going to read from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 60, the verses 1 through 9. And then we will turn to the gospel according to Matthew. We'll read chapter 1, the verses 18 through 25. And after the reading of God's word, let us sing together Psalm 87. So we begin then with the word of God in the prophet Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house." Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Let me turn now to the Gospel according to Matthew. Chapter 1, verses 18 to the end of this chapter. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. sermon, let us sing together Psalm 72 the stanzas 6 and 8. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we three kings of Orient are, so begins a rather popular Christmas carol, kind of carol you're about to sing this time of the year. As we remember also the birth of our Saviour Jesus Christ, and you can understand that this particular song is based on the passage that we have for our text for this afternoon. And of course, as we hear this this song, we may even also have a bit of a picture in our mind, not only influenced by this popular carol, but also, I'm sure, somewhat influenced by popular children's Bibles, where not only we have a story, but we have some pictures to kind of help these children to picture what went on back then, where you see three men sitting on camels, having crowns on their head, royal robes around their shoulders, perhaps a few camels in tow, because, well, something else has to carry the various treasures and gifts that they want to give to this newborn king. Now, as we read together that passage in Matthew chapter 2 you will realize of course that it did not mention that there were 3 no number is given at all nor that they were kings rather they are called wise men but even even that particular term is is a little bit misleading because when we hear a term like wise men well you we might think maybe of Older people in the congregation who are really wise, but let we think about a different context. We might think, well, there could be scholars, maybe they were philosophers. But it's interesting that the word used there, and we see that also some different Bible translations where we have that word magi, that these were kind of a special class of people, especially priests learned in the arts of interpreting the stars as well as perhaps interpreting dreams, the kind of men you could have, for example, in the days of Daniel. The king would consult these kind of people about the matters of state. But even the word magi, as we hear that, you know, that actually makes you think, well, we have a word like that in magicians. This kind of word is also used, for example, with Simon in Samaria, who was kind of a person with special skills and many people followed him. Now, We don't exactly have to think of them as magicians, but perhaps the term we would use today would be astrologers. Although today astrology can be just the study of the stars and the heavens, very interesting science. But back then when you were an astrologer, you were not just interested from a scientific point of view, but you studied the heavens because you thought that what was happening in the heavens was tied to the things here on earth. So you saw something different, which meant something different was happening or going to happen on earth. The heavens gave information about current events. Now, of course, by saying these kind of things, you kind of perhaps pop balloons in terms of popular perceptions of what this visit by those wise men was all about. But the intent is not to be a spoil sport and to spoil the story, but to help us get to the point of the account. Because really what we see here. we have to get past these these kind of romantic, picturesque situations. What we see here in this passage is some of the great themes of Scripture coming together. Namely, the theme of of enmity, as we find, for example, in what we can call the theme verse of Scripture, Genesis 3, verse 15. And the theme of the promise, particular as made to Abraham, as we find it in Genesis chapter 12. And we do well to pay attention to this so that we may see again the great work of God, but also as a result, give him the glory and in the process also find true comfort in the gospel of salvation. And therefore, I proclaim to you this afternoon, the visit of the wise man puts the birth of Jesus in the context of the great themes of enmity and promise. And we consider the theme of enmity and secondly, the theme of promise. So the visit of the wise man puts the birth of Jesus in the context of the great themes of enmity and promise. And then we begin with that theme of enmity. Now, already in passing, in the introductory remarks, it was connected with what we find in Genesis 3, verse 15. That's a verse that really is, the verse is mentioned right away, it should come to mind. That's where the Lord is interacting with our first parents, with the serpent after the fall into sin. And where the Lord told the serpent, in the hearing of our first parents, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that verse we even said earlier is like the theme verse for the Bible. Because as you think about what the Lord promised there, Really, there we have the key to the unfolding of the Old Testament storyline. There we have the key because it says the Lord says He's going to work towards this offspring of the woman, this special seed, which we know ultimately was fulfilled when the time had fully come and He sent forth His only begotten Son, born from the Virgin Mary. But then, of course, we also have the serpent, and that is the devil. Satan and we know also and we see it again throughout the whole Old Testament time as the Lord God is trying to work to fulfill his promise working towards Bethlehem always there is the serpent at work trying to prevent God's promise from being fulfilled he uses in the process human instruments think for example of what we read at the beginning of the book of Exodus people of Israel had multiplied greatly in the land of Egypt Pharaoh became more and more afraid of what that might happen, they might do as being such a great force within the nation. And so he kind of commanded a genocide, a holocaust. But he wasn't going to do it just like that. No, he was going to be subtle about it. Drown all the baby boys in the River Nile, and eventually you get rid of the people of Israel. But there, even though there were human figures involved, you could say there the serpent was at work. The serpent knew that the Lord was working through the descendants of Abraham. And he was doing whatever he can, he could to derail God's plan. So in that we see, and really that's the theme throughout the whole Old Testament, as the Lord is working to fulfill his promise, as he's working to reestablish his kingdom, the kingdom of light, over against that you constantly have the forces of the kingdom of darkness trying to thwart God's work. Now, we see this exact same enmity being worked out in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ as it also is announced by these men from the east and they speak about that they have seen a star to indicate the birth of the king of the Jews because we see in our text that while they come to Jerusalem with this news you would expect Jerusalem the people of Israel to be quite excited oh did we miss something but no one seems to get really too excited about it till Herod gets excited about it. And we know that King Herod, he looms large in this account, really throughout this whole chapter. It's interesting that the news about the birth of a king of the Jews interests him more than it does the people of Israel. For as well, Verse 3, Herod was troubled by the news, and then the people of Jerusalem were troubled with him. Now, why, why this sequence? Why only feeling troubled, not even excited, when Herod gets troubled? Well, you have to know a few details about this Herod. After all, throughout the Gospels, we come across the name Herod more times, but it can be different Herods, kind of a family name, you could say. But the Herod we are speaking about here is often referred to as Herod the Great. It's figured out that he was king over that area from approximately 37 BC until a year or two after the birth of the Lord Jesus. But now it's significant to know that this Herod, though he was king of the Jews, you could say, of Judea, he was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. A descendant of Edom, a descendant of Esau. Ah, there we start to see it, because you remember how the Lord told Rebecca when she had the twin boys in her womb and she was worried about it because it was a difficult pregnancy, then the Lord said, Well, the older will serve the younger. But but here was a reversal. It wasn't as the Lord had indicated back then. It seemed like that promise had fallen to the wayside because the older was now ruling over the younger. A descendant of Esau was ruling over the people of Jacob over Israel. Now it's interesting that at Herod, he, he did much to try to win the favor of the Jews, to kind of impress them. We know that he was involved in a major temple renovation and beautification program. But Herod was always suspicious. He was also very cruel. Anyone who was suspect of plotting to overthrow him, well, that person could probably count on not living too much after being discovered or even suspected. Oh, Herod had to have was kind of a feeling that this person is against me. Several of his wives lost their lives because they were suspected of being against him. Many of his sons Face the end of their life. Now, by the time we have the events of our text with those wise men coming to Jerusalem, Herod was coming towards the end of his life and he was in poor health. We even read of his death in verse 19, a few verses later. But to the very end of his life, he jealously and viciously defended his throne. That's also evident In the actions described in our text. Because the news of the birth of the king of the Jews. Was a threat to him who saw himself as the king of the Jews. But notice the reversal. Esau ruling over Jacob. Here in the actions of Herod and his cruelty. Also we see ultimately the ancient enmity at work. With Herod being an instrument in the hand of the evil one. For indeed, Herod is the active one in interacting with the wise men, not the Jews. It comes out also in the way that upon hearing the news of the visiting wise men, it is he who summoned the priests and the scribes. It isn't that that the wise men said, let's go to the temple and figure this out. We don't even read that. Herod kicks into action he wants to find out keep in mind the people of jerusalem seemed little moved by the whole story until herod was troubled by it fearing perhaps the the repercussions when herod suspected a threat to his throne and if we keep in mind what herod did later when he sent the soldiers to bethlehem to kill all the boys two years and younger. We know that such a fear was well founded. But we see Herod at work in this plan where he summons the leadership of Israel who know the scriptures, the ways of the Lord. That's his way of dealing with a threat to his throne. Satan's efforts, the serpent's efforts to frustrate the plan of God. Now, it's kind of an indication of how little stock the Jewish leaders seem to put in the news of the wise men about the birth of a king that they so readily complied with Herod's request to tell him. Now, notice specifically that Herod doesn't even put it in terms of the king, but he says, where is the Christ to be born? Think of the Jewish word. The Messiah. Israel lived with the messianic hope that the descendant, the anointed one in the line of David would come and he would establish again the glorious kingdom of his father David. Now, Herod's use of that word seems to suggest even he well understood what was going on. We're dealing with the Messiah. I have to stop the Messiah because the Messiah is a threat to me with Herod's murderous habit of destroying all and any threat to his throne well-established, then really you would say that that the Jewish leaders would only give out this information he asks for if they thought no harm could come from it. Because they too, even that might have been a misperception, would have lived with messianic hopes. shows you they put no stock in the news of the wise men. Safely, we can tell him where the Messiah will be born. No harm can come from it. It's remarkable how how God's people, that the Jewish people were God's people, who had his revelation, could be so tone deaf to what God was doing, to what was going on, while the enemy's ears are always alert, always picking up signals and vibes. Where is he? Where is the promised one? We have to stop him. God's people, well, no bigger deal. They kind of will go on and they even give information to the enemy in this respect. Now, as we read of the answer given by the leaders, we can see that this is a, a reference to the words of the prophet Micah, specifically chapter 5. looks like it's mainly, if you look at it later on, mainly uh, chapter 5, verse 2, but, but really it's more than just verse 2. It also goes a bit further and basically picks up an element from verse 4, which speaks about the Lord bringing forth a king who will shepherd his people Israel. Kind of a compression, you could say, a bit of a paraphrase. Not unusual to do that also not unusual that the wording does not line up exactly with what you would find in Micah chapter 5 in the, our translations it's because in the new testament we see so very often that when scripture is quoted then the quote will be taken from the greek translation of the old testament which had been around since about 200 bc the septuagint and that, that translation sometimes has certain variations and when you look at it you say yes indeed you could translate the Hebrew that way so but often in that way a New Testament quote doesn't have exactly the same wording as the Old Testament passage in the Hebrew, but as we said it comes via the Septuagint and in that way it still captures the sense very clearly and sometimes highlights also the point that needs to be made and now by by mentioning this place it became clear also that as the people knew of this prophecy the people of israel they recognized that in the lord's plan there was a need for a restart in establishing the kingship wouldn't come from jerusalem sons of david had so badly disobeyed it, it led to the exile they had never really been put on the throne again after the return from exile now There was a need for a restart, just like when your computer program goes all wrong. You have to reboot your computer, then you can fix things up. Well, the Lord was going to reboot, going to start again where he started with David. People of Israel knew this. They knew the scriptures. But obviously, the wise men did not know this. The wise men were wise about the stars, but they were not wise about the Scripture. Yet they came as far as they did. Now, that Herod had evil intentions comes out also in the way that once he had this information, he secretly invited the wise men and he wanted to know something else. He wanted to know when they had seen the star for the first time. People of Jerusalem were not impressed with information that came from people who studied the stars. But Herod was impressed. You know, the people of Israel might say that's kind of superstitious stuff. Herod was not superstitious. He was covering all his angles. And the answer he received, of course, would later play a role in his decision to kill the boys. He knew what happened about two years ago, so you got to get all the boys born in that time span. Now, also an indication again that Perhaps these wise men, having traveled from quite some distance, came as much as two years after the birth of our Savior. Now, the interaction of the wise men with King Herod suggests that they did not know his character. They didn't know the dynamic of the political situation. They had come because they saw a star and they simply wanted to worship the king that it stood for. Now when we reflect on Herod's reaction to the news brought by the wise men when we think of his background, when we think of his character, when we think of the way he will murder the baby boys. We see here that theme of enmity, of, of the clashing of the two kingdoms. Serpent is ever out to destroy. We do well to keep that in mind also, of course, we recognize that we are now beyond that phase of history where the serpent was especially concerned to snuff out the line of promise. He couldn't do that. The Lord Jesus Christ has come. But as we think, for example, of the vision of John in Revelation chapter 12, where he chases after the woman about to give birth to a child, the woman gives birth to the child, the child is snatched away, pictures for us the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, but then Since he can't get the child, the serpent continues and he goes after the woman, representing the church. Since he can't stop the seed of the woman, he tries to snuff out the church. And then we also in Revelation have those images of the evil one doing his utmost to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. He's defeated by the seed, but in the meantime, he's still out there like a roaring lion, That's why Paul also says in Ephesians chapter 6, we need to put on the armor of God, because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. Keep that in mind, because there's always the danger that as church you kind of get lulled into a sense of security, false sense of peace. You become tone deaf to the way that God is working, while the evil one never rests He's always on the alert, even lulling this church into a false sense of security. And when that happens, there's a deadly danger. And at the same time, while our text reminds us then of that theme of enmity, it also reminds us of the theme of promise. That's our second point. Now, if the theme of enmity was linked to Genesis 3, verse 15 then the theme of promise is linked in particular to Genesis 12. Again, you know, those kind of verses, if we hear them, those passages, we should think right away, certain association. Genesis 3.15, enmity. Genesis 12, we think of the promise of God to Abraham as he sets him apart. And then we read, for example, in Genesis 12, verse 2 and 3, And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this promise, of course, is connected to Genesis 3.15. There we focused on the enmity, but Genesis 3.15 also has promise, the promise of the seed the promise to Abraham builds on that promise. Because there the Lord shows that he's going to fulfill the promise of the seed, the offspring, through the family of Abraham. But what stands out in that promise to Abraham that has our concern this, after, this afternoon is the last part of the promise. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be Blessed. Always keep that in mind. When when the Lord did that, as we read it in Genesis 12, he he isolated Abraham. He took him out of his familiar surrounding of Ur and Haran, sent him off to Canaan. He isolated him. You might think for a moment, well, God is an isolationist. He likes to build walls and then he wants to keep people within those walls and, and he is kind of focused just on those people. But in the very founding moment of when the Lord makes that separation he says look it's only temporary that he did this for the benefit of the nations of the earth because the blessing for the world would come from the line of Abraham. Now the recognition also therefore should be that the savior of the world will come from Abraham and that recognition you find it Throughout the Old Testament time, you could say the, the universal dimension of God's purpose. This why we sang Psalm 87, indication of people who at that point were enemies of Israel. And the Lord says, they also will be written on the rolls of Zion, of Jerusalem. We'll sing also about it in Psalm 72. Now, even though this theme is dominant in the Old Testament. Yes, Israel is isolated, but it is temporary for the benefit of the world. By the time the Lord Jesus was born, it seems that the people of Israel had forgotten this. We sense that because when you read the Gospels, you you see this Very narrow-minded perspective for the Jews, a nationalistic view of salvation. The Messiah would come, he would restore Israel, and the rest of the nations, well, they didn't really count anyway. But what comes out, also already in this very passage, near the very beginning of our Lord's presence here on earth, is how the King of the Jews, the King of Israel, is the King for all humanity. Because Jesus is not just king for one little national group. He's the king for the Gentiles. Keep in mind that the Gentiles, of course, in Scripture, that refers to all the nations who are not Jews. The visit of the wise men brings out that it was those of Gentile background who were the first to recognize this and to act on this. It was those of Gentile background who said, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. King of the Jews, they wanted to worship him. Now it's striking indeed that these foreigners spoke of him as the king of the Jews. You will not read a description like that again in the Gospel of Matthew till near the end of our Lord's ministry when he is arrested, when he will also be mocked. And then they mockingly say, the king of the Jews. And, and when also he is before Pilate, then you hear the people of Israel shouting, we have no king but Caesar. They do not want this king of the Jews. Does not fit their perception. Now, another striking aspect is, is how these wise men, these magi, came to this conclusion, that when they studied the stars, they came to the conclusion, this is the king of the Jews. That's remarkable because that's not the way the Lord has generally revealed himself. If you think of the Old Testament times, well, the Lord would speak to his servants through dreams. He would give revelation to prophets, but, but not by people studying the stars, He might use the stars as an example and say to Abraham, well, can you count the stars? No. Well, so innumerable will your people be. But that's a different way of looking at the stars. than what is the case here? It was a way among the nations that they would say, well, we can tell about events in the world by studying the stars. We can anticipate what's going to happen by studying the stars. Even they had the idea that you could tell that an important ruler was being born at a certain point. They said it about Caesar. They said it about Alexander the Great by combining it with events that had taken place in, in, among the stars in the heavens. Now, we do not know what the Magi saw, but it is evident that they had seen something. We don't know how many other people saw it. That they just ignored it. They saw it. And they interpreted it specifically saying, this means the birth of the king of the Jews. Not just the birth of a king, but the birth of the king of the Jews. How did they put that together? You can speculate a little bit. As matters, as experts in the stars, perhaps, and also experts in the ancient writings, perhaps, you know, they, they had read somewhere about Balaam. Remember Balaam, the magician who was hired by Balak to curse the people of Israel about 1400 years earlier and they were about to enter the promised land. And you know that Balaam, though he was supposed to curse, he just couldn't get the curses out of his mouth. Every time he opened his mouth, he had to bless the people of Israel. That's the Lord made him. He could could not do what Balak wanted. He had to do what the Lord wanted. Now, it's interesting, the last... Blessing that Balaam gave, Numbers 24, verse 70 to 19, he said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities." You hear those words? A star shall come out of Jacob. Ooh, that sounds kind of attractive. But though well, it would be nice if we could make that kind of connection, in the end, we don't know. We're not told how they figure it out. And you may say, well, why do I mention it then? Well, in case you ask me afterwards, why didn't you mention that? So you have to explain that ahead of time. So it's interesting that there seem you can make a connection like that, but in the end, we are not told how they figured it out. But we are simply told that they saw something, it moved them to action, and they traveled towards Jerusalem. There they saw this star of wonder, star with royal beauty bright. To think again of that popular Christmas carol. Here it is right, they followed this star of wonder. Now, even more, people have tried to figure out as to what exactly they might have seen. You know that you can do that because things in the heavens kind of follow a pattern. And they say certain things only happen every so many years. So they think, well, was it the case that back then there was a particular configuration of the various planets that made it look like an extra bright star? That happens sometimes, the way they line up. Was it the case of the passing comet Haley? Well, again, it's all guesswork. It's also complicated by the fact that it seems that this star was not constantly visible. They had seen it. Said, we've got to go, have to go to Jerusalem. Didn't see it again, it seems, till after they had visited Jerusalem, talked to Herod, were sent on their way. Then again they saw it. And in this case, it was so specific that it guided them exactly to the house where Mary was with the baby, jo- baby Jesus. It's remarkable that they were guided in that way, which makes it clear that this was not your ordinary thing that you see on a regular basis in the heavens, even on a repeatable pattern. This was something special used by the Lord to guide these men. And when they find them, when they find the baby Jesus, and we see also their joy, interesting the way it is expressed, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Almost kind of over the top, you could say. Here, these grown men, wise men and they see a baby but boy are they excited but still guided by that star they knew there was something special and so we think back to that promise to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed the king of the Jews that came from Abraham is the king for all peoples and the first to recognize that were foreigners Not the people of Jerusalem. They didn't get excited. Foreigners got excited. And when they saw him, we are told that they worshipped him. Notice that. They worshipped a little baby. Recognizing in that baby the king of the Jews. It's interesting how it is described as well that they fell down and worshipped him. That's quite a different posture of worship than we have. We don't really move too much we stand up to sing a few songs we sit down again we bow our heads but back then when they worshiped they they put their bodies into it they got down on their knees that's what they did before that baby the king of the jews interesting also when we see that involvement the whole being involved makes you think about how we involve ourselves in our worship whether we are even fully mentally engaged or whether we are drifting off all over the place as we are busy with the word of god as we are worshiping him Even the posture makes us think again of that dedication to what was still a baby, but what they recognized to be the king of the Jews. And then we also read how their worship was not just showing it by their actual posture, but also accompanied by generous giving. Expensive items, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The kind of things you give to a king. Of course, when we know what happened to what happened, how Joseph and Mary had to flee with Jesus pretty soon after this, it was a good thing they had these resources, would help them as they had to travel and kind of be refugees for a little while in Egypt. But these kind of gifts, they, they bring to mind the words from Psalm 72. We'll sing those later on, where that particular psalmist speaks even of kings bringing tribute to the king of, of Israel. It's interesting. Because there it speaks of kings and the association with this passage, perhaps that's why eventually people kind of said, well, these three kings of Orient are. But no indication, as we said before, in the passage itself that has been put there by human imagination. But then also we think of what we read together in Isaiah chapter 60. But also Isaiah, as it progresses, not only is there the promise of restoration after the exile, but also of peoples coming from all among the nations to be part of the people of Israel, believing in the God of Israel. Verse six, Isaiah sixty, we read about them bringing gold and frankincense. And so, in that respect, what we see in the visit of the and the worship by the wise men is an indication again that people from the nations, as the Lord foretold, would come. To worship the king of Israel would come to worship the Lord Jesus. They would worship him by their presence, being there. You can't do worship from a distance. No, by being there and by their presence, giving things to the king. You don't come there with a tight wallet. You give of your, in your generosity. That's part of worship. And so indeed, the visit of the wise men anticipates how the people from the nations would come to worship the king of the Jews, while the Jews would reject him. It's a theme that, that Matthew will develop quite, quite distinctly. Example, another example would be Matthew 8, passages passage where the Jews are told that the sons of Abraham, the physical children, will be cast out from the kingdom because they don't want to welcome the king, while well, people will come from east and west and they will recline at table with Abraham. And even in chapter 2, you know, often you can see that when you read a book, you have a hint of the end in the beginning. Well, where does Matthew end? It ends with the Great Commission. By that point, it is clear, the leaders don't want Jesus, the people of Israel in general don't want Jesus, but the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, go to the nations and make disciples of all nations, baptism command, teaching and instructing them, but clearly, Already in chapter 2, we get a hint of the end. Jesus is there for the world. And the Jews still get a chance to listen to him, don't want him. The Lord says, okay, now you go to the nations, all according to the promise made to Abraham. And so while in a sense, Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, will end with the Jews shouting, we have no king but Caesar. Then it also ends by the nations shouting, where is the king of the Jews? So we can worship him. And so our text then kind of concludes with the wise men riding off into the sunset as they head back home. The Lord had sent an angel, we are told, to warn them, don't go back to Herod. That way they learned something about Herod they hadn't picked up themselves. In that sense, not so wise, you could say, they were just eager to worship the king. You know, it didn't stop Herod, but it did lead to a necessary delay for Joseph and Mary to take Jesus to Egypt. And then as suddenly as they appeared, the wise men disappear and you never really hear of them again in the scriptures. But the message is clear, namely that the king of the Jews is the king of all the nations of the earth. But all this leaves us with a question, brothers and sisters, yes, us who have God's clear revelation in scripture who know not just the Jesus born there in Bethlehem as a baby, but who know Jesus who was arrested, who was crucified, who died, was buried, he arose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And the question is, brothers and sisters, whether we seek the King of the Jews as joyfully as those wise men, whether we are eager to worship him, with our whole being and ready to open our treasure. And that's not just a question for Christmas Day. That's a question for every day. Amen.